Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good morning, Southbridge. Thank you so much for joining us from your living room to our online gathering. These days are strange days, aren't they? I don't think it's any accident that God had to start a sermon series way back in January called Upside Down, talking about our world being an upside down world. And if you remember the subtitle of that, it was A New Normal for a New Year. But none of us could have known what this year was going to have in store for us. But I believe that God prepared us, and he was preparing us then, and he's got us at this moment now for right at this moment. And today what we're going to do is we're going to wrap up this series in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. We'll be doing through this this Sermon on the Mount. And I believe God's got a special word for us today. I'm going to pray for us and we'll jump into Matthew chapter 7. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you've given us technology. Thank you that we get to gather. We don't just totally live in isolation uh, because of this time. We talk about social distancing, Father, but we can be connected through various different means. And we long to be back together in person. But Father, today, I pray you'd speak to our hearts right now this way. I pray you'd give me your words and I pray for each heart that hears these words, God, that you'd open them. I pray you'd have people join that we would, would never come to our church and you might save somebody today. And Father, I pray for those of us that are followers of yours, you'd have a word for us to challenge us, to change us, to transform us, that we wouldn't be conformed by this world, that we wouldn't let CNN and Fox News and MSNBC and all the news things shape the way we live, but we would be transformed by your word in this moment. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, church, life consists of a series of choices. And you could almost say that the choices that you make today, they're going to determine where you end up tomorrow. Like they're continually making choices. You chose to join us today for worship and you chose to get out of bed and you chose to maybe wear pajamas, maybe not wear pajamas. You've made choices already today. But you know, when we're in panicked mode, a lot of times we make bad choices. Our choices aren't what they could be. And I don't think anybody would, would doubt that there are a lot of people in panic right now. And a lot of you have put different statements about that on your websites and on your social media, on your Facebook page, Instagram page, and sometimes you got little memes that are funny, and sometimes you got things that are serious. Some people put verses, and I saw one person had put a statement that said about 2020 and the, the, time, uh, the time change. They said, who knew that we'd skip forward an hour and go from standard time to the twilight zone? Things have gotten strange. And for some of you, that's put you in a mode of panic. Some of you, I've read your Facebook post about crying about toilet paper and just a fear if you have prepared enough. And some of us are just thinking about what could happen next and am I infected? Could somebody else be infected? And here's the danger. When, you make, when you're in panic mode, you make bad decisions. And as I was thinking about this message today on choices and talking about Christ-centered choices in crisis, I, I was just thinking to myself that whenever I've made decisions in panic mode, I've made bad choices. And I remembered this time of year in North Carolina is not just the time of the, this pandemic taking place, but there's also another thing that happens. It's allergy season, and it rains, but not water. Those of you who are from around here, it rains this green stuff from the sky called pollen. It'll be all over our cars, all over our decks. It's all over the place. And I remember a couple of years ago, after the pollen season had come, I was power washing my house. And I had this power washer. I had borrowed it, and it was leaking from the hose at this one spot. I, started, I got soaking wet just doing the backside of the house and power washing all the gunk off. And, and so I went inside, and I changed clothes. I put on a pair of swim trunks and flip-flops because I knew I was going to get all wet, and I came out. I remember I was doing the front of the house, and I had come to this anthill. It was more like an ant city. Like, it was this huge anthill that was there, but I had put ant killer on it already, so I thought all the ants were gone. And I just blasted this thing, and kind of like a tsunami, like knocked out their village, 
And then I was going and I was, I was doing the front steps and it was a satisfying feeling to see the grime come off of those front steps. And then I got another feeling on my feet. And I looked down and there were thousands of ants on my feet and crawling up my legs. And in that moment, I panicked. I didn't know what to do. I thought it was pretty clever at the time. And I'm dancing around out there, you know, shirt off and flip-flops on. And my neighbors probably think I'm nuts. And, and then I thought, I've got this wand in my hand. It's the power washer. I can't spray my feet with it. Too powerful. Knock the flesh off my feet. But what I can do is I can take it and I can shoot the baggy part of my swim trunks and the water will run down, rinse these ants off. I started to do it. I was feeling pretty proud of myself until I moved and I hit my calf muscle and tore some flesh off of my leg. The point is, when we make decisions in panic, we oftentimes make bad decisions. And so today, as we go to God's Word and we talk about choices, critical choices in a time of crisis, Christ-centered choices, I want to ask us to push pause on the panic button right now and open our hearts to what God may have to say to us. I believe God has a message for us individually, as a church, as a country. And if you think about what God may want us to decide, we know that the scripture says, Hebrews eleven six, 6, without faith it's impossible to please him. And so as we walk through this passage of scripture today, I want to challenge you to ask yourself this question. What faith decision does God want me to make as an individual? What faith decision might God want for us as a church? What, what faith decision does God have for us as a country in this time of crisis? If you've got your Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7 today. Matthew chapter 7, what's happening is that Jesus has been preaching a sermon since the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. And he's now driving us to decision, like every good preacher will do. He's like, now we've got to do something. You can't just hear the word, you've got to do something about this. And so as he's driving us to decision, think about the whole message. Back in Matthew chapter 5, remember, Jesus is at the pinnacle of his popularity. He went into Galilee. He healed every disease. Sometimes he doesn't do that. Sometimes he heals one disease out of thousands of people. But here he heals all these diseases. Imagine how popular he is at that point. And all these people are gathered. Thousands of people are gathered around. There's a lot of people in this crowd. Some of them are dedicated followers of his. Kind of like today, some of you that are tuning in. and You're a follower of Jesus. Do you want to know what does Jesus have to say to you today? Some of them had dropped their nets. They had committed to Jesus. Some of them were just part of the crowd. And that's some of you today. The crowd comes around Jesus because they want to get something from Jesus. What blessing does he have? What, what inspiration is he going to give? How is he going to fix a problem in my life? And, and they haven't committed to Jesus. They just want something from Jesus. And that was the majority of people. But there were also some enemies of Jesus that were there. And Jesus taught the same sermon to all of them. He tells them what it is to follow him. Some are listening in and he wants them to know what it would be like if they truly committed their lives. Others have committed their lives and he wants to show them what it looks like to continue to walk with him. And, and so he gives this message. It starts off, he uses this Greek word, makarios. It means happy, truly happy, real satisfaction. Everyone would be hanging on his words. He says, are the poor in spirit? And he turns their world upside down. And he begins to teach them, teaching that that shows that what he's really after is spiritual transformation in our lives. That's the summary of the whole sermon up to this point. It's spiritual transformation that he wants to do, not just behavior change, not behavior modification, but spiritual transformation from the inside out that leads to gospel saturation in the lives of the people that you come into contact with. And he's shown us that. And now he's telling us, you've got a decision to make. Look at what he says. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13 and 14. He gives this analogy that drives us to this decision. Commandment, enter. By the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, 
and those who find it are few. Jesus is the master teacher. He's got this uncanny ability to make all the complexities of life become very clear. And he does that here in this passage with this analogy. He shows us the most important choice that we'll ever make in life is whether to follow him or not follow him. And he shows us here there's one choice that comes with three warnings. And that's how this passage unpacks. And that'll be our outline today. One choice, three warnings. And the choice is whether to follow Jesus or not. But here's what you need to know about that choice. You choose to follow Jesus, that comes with a cost. Choosing to follow Jesus Christ comes with a cost. He shows us that here in this passage. And he says the first commandment, enter. And then he gives a pretty simple analogy, really. It's about two gates. One's narrow, one's wide. It's about two paths. One, one's easy, one's hard. And, and it seems like, like everybody's going to go through the wide gate, right? Of course they do. He says that. The majority of people go down there. And if you just even look around in your house right now at a doorway, kitchen doorway, bathroom doorway, bedroom doorway, whatever that, a normal-sized doorway, it's really easy for a normal-sized person to walk through it. Can you imagine if that was like a quarter or an eighth of the size of that doorway? And you had an option to go through one or the other. Of course, you're going to choose the easy one, but he gives a twist on the analogy, a twist that makes it ridiculous to go through the easy one. The twist is this. He says, through the easy way, the wide gate, the broad way, the way of this world, he said, that leads to destruction. But through the narrow gate, the harder path, that leads to life. Real life, abundant life, eternal life that can only come through Jesus, who says he is the way, the truth, and the life. And what he's talking about is following the path that he gives us his followers to come follow him. It comes at a cost. But when you look at that analogy, it almost seems like a ridiculous analogy. Like, who would choose the easy way then? Like, no one would do that. It's kind of like, have you ever seen the commercial that Geico does? where they've got four kids, it's like they're in a, a horror movie and they're running from the bad guy and they fall because there's always somebody falls in a horror movie, right? And so they fall and then they come to a spot in the woods and they're trying to make a decision. There's a, a crucial choice. And one of them says, let's hide in the attic. Another one says, let's hide in the basement. Then there's this really whiny girl and if you haven't seen it, you can look it up on YouTube, but she goes, why don't we just get in that running car over there? And there's a car. It's like the obvious choice, just sitting there running. They could get in and drive away. But then it appears like it's her boyfriend says, are you crazy? Let's go hide behind those chainsaws. There's a garage full of chainsaws, and they go hide behind the chainsaws. Then the narrator comes up and says, if you're in a horror movie, you make poor choices. It's just what you do. And what Jesus is saying here is essentially the same thing. It's obvious. Like, there's a good decision, a bad decision, but most people choose the bad decision because it's the easy way. It's the path of least resistance. It's the popular path. It's the most inclusive way. There's no cost to it. Everyone can travel down it. Anyone can fit through the gate. But the narrow gate that comes at a cost? See, some people will pause there and say, well, wait a minute. Are you saying that that in order to follow Jesus, I've got to clean up my life? Are you saying that it's works based on my salvation? I'm not saying that at all. And Jesus isn't saying that at all. We know that we're saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. That it was because of what Jesus did on the cross that we can enter into salvation with him. That's how we can become righteousness. It's his righteousness that we receive at the cross. It was an exchange. He took our sins. We take his righteousness because of what he did at the cross. But in order to receive what he did at the cross requires faith. And faith expresses itself through actions. It's like James tells us in James chapter 2 that faith without deeds is dead. Or Paul, the apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, that God's prepared for us good works for us to walk in them. 
That if you have faith, if you are traveling down the narrow way, your life will be different. There will be works. And there will be a cost. There will be sin that has to be forsaken. There will be things that will have to be died to. And Jesus says, and many times we don't like to talk about this at church, if anyone wants to follow me, you've got to deny yourself. Take up your cross, follow me. He says in Luke chapter 14, let me read you what verse 33 says. He says, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciples. You read Luke chapter 9 and you see all these different people with different things. And God has this tendency to put his finger on the thing that's most important to us. You think about like with the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. Jesus says, go sell all your money. Then you can come follow me. I'll sell all your possessions. Says the woman at the well in John chapter 4. She's addicted to men. She's shacking up with a guy who's not her husband. She's had five different guys. He says, he puts his finger on her adultery. Or think about Abraham, maybe the most dramatic example in the Bible. There's this guy who was unable to have kids. God calls him to follow him. He walks by faith. He's the father of our faith. And then God renames him Abraham, which means a father of a multitude, but he doesn't have any kids. Can you imagine what it would be like to be Abraham? Because God gives him a promise, but he doesn't fulfill the promise for years. And he's waiting. Can you imagine being Abraham during that waiting time period, meeting someone? Hey, what's your name? Father of a multitude. How many kids do you have? Zero. But in Genesis chapter 22, it says, after he's had a child, his son Isaac, whom he loves, it says that God tests him. Now here's something you need to know about your faith. God tests our faith to reveal. Now Satan will tempt you to destroy, but God tests you to reveal. That's not the same thing. Satan will tempt you to destroy you. God will test you to reveal something about you. Think about a test. A test doesn't make something true. A test reveals what is true. Like if you've gotten tested for the virus, it doesn't give you the virus. It doesn't heal you from the virus. It just shows you whether you have the virus. When you're taking a test in school, it doesn't, doesn't teach you math, doesn't, show, doesn't take away your knowledge of math. It shows what you know about math. And so he's testing his faith here. And what he's doing is he's putting his finger on what's so important to him, his son, and he's saying, do you love your son more than you trust me? You walk by faith. It comes at a cost. What has your faith cost you, follower of Jesus? If your faith has not cost you anything, if Jesus has not demanded anything of you, then are you sure that you're following the Jesus of the Bible? I'm not talking about the Jesus you've heard about in church, but when you look at what, is, what doesn't really matter what your church says, what does the Bible say? Following Jesus Christ comes at a cost. And if it's never cost you anything, maybe cost you some sin that held you and gripped you. And maybe this season right now, while we're on lockdown, is the time for you to turn from that sin and turn to Jesus. Or maybe it cost you a relationship, maybe a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or maybe it cost you a dream. God's done that before. Have you ever read about the birth of Jesus and what happened with Mary? Maybe following him cost you something you were trying to use him to get because he's trying to deliver himself to you. Following Jesus comes at a cost. That's the choice you have to make. But it comes with some warnings in this passage too. The first warning is there are false teachers. Look at the next verse in verse 15. There are false teachers. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Here's the warning. Beware. Warning. Kind of like a warning label on a product. Watch out. You're going to use this. There's some dangers. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And so they look different on the outside than they are on the inside. We call that hypocrisy. On the outside, they look like genuine followers of Jesus. They look like sheep, God's people, God's flock. But inward, they're trying to devour you. Now listen, there are false teachers 
every day, all the time, all over the place. Podcasts, news broadcasts, writing books, like all the time. But here he's talking specifically about pastors, elders, spiritual leaders that are disguising themselves as true followers of Jesus, but they're trying to actually benefit from the flock, trying to steal from the flock, trying to devour the flock, maybe through their greed. Maybe because they care more about people's opinions of them than they do about God's approval. Maybe because they're trying to pass off their own ideas and they take the scriptures and they say part of it, but then they twist it. Oftentimes they'll, they'll twist it in a way where they're focused more on people's needs than they are on what the scripture actually says because they're trying to gather a following of them for themselves rather than our following of followers of Jesus. More interested in entertaining people than edifying the body. How do you know? Well, Jesus says in an analogy here, the master teacher, you'll recognize them by their fruits. So he points to their lives, not just what they say. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's judgment language. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Listen, there will be false teachers. It's not a question of if, there will be. The question is, who are they? And they're very deceptive. In fact, Jesus says later in Mark chapter 13, in verse 23, he says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. So the question becomes for us, as we think about where we're going to go to church and who are going to be our spiritual leaders and we're supposed to pray for them, they're going to have to give an account, Hebrews 13, and who are these guys and who, who should they be and how do we know if they're false? He doesn't lay out here what their message is that's false. And it's not every person that we have this slight disagreement with in doctrine. It's not, you know, some people believe this about the millennium and some people believe that and some people believe, no. But if you put this in context, it clearly is people who deny the narrow way. We just read verses 13 and 14. And then he warns about false teachers. He just talked about the false teachers are people who say, it's a broad, everything's good, You're cool. everything's fine. You're, there's no wrath, there's no judgment. Let's just talk about love. Let's just talk about mercy. Let's just talk about grace. Those are true things. But incomplete, if you leave out repentance, if you leave out, and what we've done as a church, and we've failed as churches, as we cut out guilt and we cut out sin and we cut out God and we make everything about us and we don't tell people about the narrow way. And it's kind of like, I remember there was an evangelist, his name was Bob Harrington. I got to meet him one time. He was known as the, the chaplain of Bourbon Street because he would go into bars and share the gospel. He was an insurance salesman who would come to Christ and then became passionate about leading other people in that city to Christ. And he told a story one time about, it was, he was in New Orleans, had been torrential downpour rains for a couple days straight, and then it stopped. But it was really hot out. And you know what happens when it gets really hot after the rain is that the fog, you know, the heat comes up off the pavement, and there's a fog there. And so he was driving home one night, and the fog was coming up, and his headlights were hitting. It was kind of absorbing his headlights. He could barely see ahead. He was tired. It had been long days for him, and he had his window rolled down just to try and keep himself awake. And then up in the distance, he saw somebody moving. He wasn't sure who it was or even really what it was at first, but it was this guy that was up there was waving his hands. He could barely see him. And he thought, well, maybe, maybe he had car trouble. Then he looked around, and there wasn't a car anywhere. And then he remembered he had seen a sign just a few moments before. And it said, prison area, 
do not pick up hitchhikers. And so now he's thinking to himself, well, this person might need help, but also it could be a criminal, and if I stop and pull me out of my car, kill me, steal my car, he's trying to decide what to do, and as he gets closer, he can see this guy's got mud all over his clothes. And he's waving his arms, and because he's got his window down, as he's getting closer, he can hear him, and he's going, stop, stop. He continues to drive towards this guy, and he's trying to decide, what do I do? And he thought, I'm, I'm going to go past him. And so he swerves into the other lane, and he presses the gas, but the guy runs into the other lane. Stop! And so he swerves back, and the guy runs back, and now he's got to decide, am I going to run this guy over, or am I going to stop? At the last second, he slams on his brakes, he skids to this guy, and he falls on the hood of his car. And the guy says, thank God you stopped. The bridge is out up ahead. And I climbed up the bank to come warn you. See, that's what a true prophet does. They're willing to lay their life down for the people. A false prophet stands on the side of the road. Everything's cool. You're good. Pretends there's peace when there's not peace, when judgment's coming, when wrath is coming, when repentance is needed. The prophet Jeremiah talks about this in his day. God speaks through him and, and says there's a lot of false prophets in his day. In, in Jeremiah chapter 6, he says this. In Jeremiah chapter 6, he says that the people were saying, peace, peace, when there's no peace. In 6.14, he says, they've healed the wound of my people lightly, which is not a real healing. Saying, peace, peace, when there's no peace. Those prophets didn't have permission to say peace. God wasn't bringing peace. God was bringing destruction if they didn't repent. But God was gracious in giving them time to repent. The problem was they had acted like they had already repented. If you read Jeremiah, what you see is these, these people, they claimed that God was their God. They claimed to love him. They came to worship him. They came to his house. But they lived lives that denied him. What did Jesus say? Praise me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. He wants our hearts. He says in Jeremiah chapter 7, what their behavior is like, they don't have a life of repentance. He says, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, that's your false gods? Go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations? No, you're not safe. But he's gracious. Because if you repent, repentance doesn't just mean saying I'm sorry. Repentance is not just I feel bad about what I did. Repentance is you turn, which means there'll be a change not just in your, your mind, but a change in your behavior. Listen to what he says to them. In chapter 7, he says, If you do not oppress the sojourner, that's the refugee, the fatherless, those are the orphans, or the widow, or shed innocent blood, think about our nation and the abortions that we commit, in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I'll let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Let me tell you something. Southbridge, church in America, probably the church around the world, We've sold our souls to the gods of Baal, to the broad road for popularity, for prosperity, for all the things that we want people's approval more than we want God's approval. And this time with global shutdown should be a time for us, and I believe this is God's message, for us to, to refocus, to recalibrate, to repent, to experience renewal, to refocus not on just our opinions, not just on the polls and who's voting, what's the majority doing, but to refocus on what God says and God's truth, to recalibrate our hearts towards him, 
to repent of the things that we're doing and saying and the things that are opposite of the things that we're saying that we're doing that are offensive to him and to experience renewal from him. He's gracious if we'll repent. But that's the narrow way. First warning, there's false teachers. They're not going to tell you to repent. They're not going to tell you about the narrow way. Second warning is there are false followers. Not only are there false teachers, there are false followers. Look at the next part of this passage, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Workers of lawlessness? Did you see the resume? We cast out demons in your name, prophesy in your name, do mighty works in your name. I stuff on there I haven't done. I don't know if you've cast out any demons. Like there's some wild stuff on here that appears they'd have the power of God in their lives. But remember who Jesus is preaching to? Three different people in the, in the crowd. Committed followers. Committed their lives to Jesus. Drop their nets. Follow him. It's cost them something. People that are interested in getting something from Jesus, they're curious about Jesus. There's also people that are opponents of Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees. That's why he said at one point in the message, he said, unless your, your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you can't, enter the king, you can't even get into the kingdom. How do you have that righteousness? Through the righteousness that was Jesus Christ and receiving him at the cross. But it's possible to be like the Pharisees. They're a warning in the scriptures to know all the language, to have the right beliefs, and, and to even... To obey the rules. And you see, it's not just about believing the right stuff. Even demons believe that Jesus was the Christ. Demons have the best theology in the New Testament, better than the disciples. They're trying to figure out who Jesus is. Then when Jesus shows up, demons are like, you're the Christ. You can destroy us. But they're not going to heaven. The Pharisees, they weren't headed that direction. In fact, do you know whose resume lines up a lot with this passage of Scripture? There's a guy named Judas. He's a warning to us. It's possible to be really close to Jesus without committing to Jesus. It's possible to even teach in his name and do miracles in his name because of what you're going to get from Jesus without committing your life to Jesus. Because you see here what, what these people are going to say on judgment day is, Lord, Lord. That's intense and intimate language. Lord, when you use a name twice, it's, there's an intensity to that. Abraham, Abraham. Moses, Moses. Samuel, Samuel. Or Jesus on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So they're using this intimate language. But let me tell you something, what they're not doing based on this passage, they're not doing the will of the Father. Intimacy without action is hypocrisy. Instead, they're promoting their resume. And let me tell you something, what God wants is not a resume from you. He wants a relationship with you. Did you see what he says to them when he says depart? He doesn't say your resume is not enough. He says, I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It wasn't you need to put more stuff on your resume. It's you need a relationship with me. What God wants is not a resume from you. He wants a relationship with you. And relationship starts with trust. That you trust him. That what he did for you on the cross was sufficient. You don't have to do anything else. But then as you continue to walk by faith with him, you're going to obey his commands. What does he say in John chapter 14? If you love me, do what I say. Do what I command. And so you see that faith lived out, that you walk the narrow way, the narrow path. They weren't doing that. 
They were doing their own thing in Jesus' name. And many of us proclaim to follow Jesus, but we've renamed our own idols the name Jesus. And you follow the Jesus of the Bible. He's warning. There's false teachers. There's false followers. He gives a third warning. The third warning is this, that crisis clarifies all of our choices. Crisis clarifies all of your choices. Look what he says in verse 24. Everyone, this is a message to everyone, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, puts them into practice, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came. The winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. In this passage, you got two people, you got two houses, you got two foundations, you got one storm. You want to guarantee in life there will be storms. No one knew this pandemic was going to come. No one knew when cancer was going to come. No one knew when the car accident was going to come. No one knew when the kids were going to rebel. But let me tell you something. All those things happen. And what God does in those moments, he uses them to clarify our choices. And he's speaking a message to us in the midst of the crisis. And what you end up seeing when the crisis comes is who's built their house on the rock. And the, the, the point here is not just that Jesus is the rock, that he's the cornerstone, that he's the foundation. The point is that the people that have built their life on the rock are the ones that are doing what he says in his word. So what's the message he has for us? I love the famous quote by C.S. Lewis. He says this about difficulty. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Can I tell you something, church, country, anybody who's listening? God's hit the button on the megaphone and he is speaking to us now and I believe the message he's speaking to us is this. It's time to refocus on my word and what I have to say to you and there's a lot of noise out there and there's a lot of messages and there's a lot of false teachers but I'm speaking to you and while everything's on slowdown, will you listen? Will you recalibrate your heart towards me? Will you repent of your sin? Will you let me bring renewal? Will you let me bring revival? What we need is revival. A follower of Jesus. You've got this time where everything's changed, everything's slowed down. What would it look like for you to recommit your time in his word? To commit that every day during this, however long we're shut down, you're going to get into the scriptures. And maybe, maybe if you're part of Southbridge, you go back to the beginning of Matthew 5 and you start reading through just verse by verse through this sermon and asking God to, to sift through your life to show you if there's anything offensive in your life. And when he finds it, what would it look like for you to repent of those sins and to walk that narrow path with him that leads to life, abundant life, true life, real life, rather than trying to build our world on things that are temporary because he's telling us here in this passage, the crisis will come and all that will fall apart. Maybe it's a crisis of sickness. Maybe it's a crisis of difficulties in life. Maybe it's judgment day from God because that will come. And Jesus portrayed himself in this passage not as just the way who will let everybody in, but as the one who's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you, and tell some they can't. Because they haven't been traveling the narrow way. And so I want to say to some of you here that are not yet followers of Jesus, maybe you're part of the crowd, you're interested in Jesus, maybe even like Jesus, maybe even believe things about Jesus, but you haven't committed your life to Jesus. 
that there's a 100% guarantee that Judgment Day is coming. There's a 100% guarantee you will die. Maybe not of this virus, maybe not of cancer, maybe just getting really old, but you will die. And you will stand before God. Do you know him? Because he tells us how we can. We can have a relationship with him when we acknowledge our sin, that we haven't met his perfect standard, but, but we need his son, Jesus, who was, who was that perfect standard and died on the cross in our place. He says the, the wages of our sin is death, the Bible says, Romans 6, 23. But the gift of God is eternal life that he offers us through Jesus Christ, but you have to receive that gift. And he tells us how? By calling upon him as Lord. And so I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, but you want to begin a relationship with him, will you, will you pray with me right now? Just a simple prayer. I'm going to acknowledge sin before him and ask him to be Savior. And if you want to do that, will you pray these words? And if you already know Jesus, will you pray for someone right now that might be watching that you've never met that will trust Christ right now? Dear God, I come before you and I acknowledge I'm a sinner. I have not met your perfect standard. But I believe your son Jesus Christ was sinless. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. And I believe he rose from the dead and is offering me life. And today I want to accept that life and I want to call upon Jesus to be Lord of my life. I surrender my life to him. And I want to walk your narrow path. And I want to experience eternal life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you just prayed that prayer, the Bible says that all of heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents, who turns to him. But we want to help you as a church, regardless of where you live and where you're watching from, to grow in that relationship with Jesus. That's the most important decision you could ever make. But there are multiple choices to come after that, of walking with him, of getting plugged into a local church, of being baptized and get into a small group and study in your Bible and we want to give you some resources to do that better. And so if you would, would you just email me at info at sfchurch.com and let me know about the decision you just made. And some of you are already followers of Jesus and you might be interested in how, beyond this meeting that we're having, how can I be connected to our church? I would challenge you to go to our website as well, sfchurch.com and you'll see lots of ways, lots of things you can get involved in. But many of you today are used to gathering together and being here live with us and and because you weren't able to be here live, you think, well, I can't worship through giving. And that's not true. Uh, in fact, your giving right now is so important. And I want to encourage you, if you're used to giving and the little black boxes we put in the back of the room, if you would instead shift your giving, at least for this season, to online giving, maybe you're about to get a stimulus check and maybe you don't need it, you want to give it to somebody else or you want to be generous to us here. And, and we'd love for you to, to be able to do that through our online giving, which will be in the link below. But if you go to our church, sfchurch.com, and under the giving link, it'll give you options on how you can do that. Now I say that and realize that some of you here have lost jobs or experiencing financial difficulty and I don't want that to be a burden to you. In fact, we want to be a blessing to you as a church. If you would reach out to us at that same email, info at sfchurch.com and let us know about your financial needs, about maybe struggles you're having or maybe you just need somebody to go pick up a prescription for you or, or, or go pick up groceries. Would you let us know? We've got people that are eager, desiring to do that to bless you. And the money that we get in those offerings, we always take a part of it and use it for that type of thing. Because we believe that the world's going to know that we're as disciples because we love one another and so we want to do that. And so don't rob us of the opportunity of helping you out. And you may have questions about other things going on. Easter's still going to happen. Easter's coming up in a couple weeks and I want you to invite your friends. We're going to have service. 9 a.m., 11 a.m. There's going to be a unique opportunity for everybody in the family. And so you can just share our website, share our links for those and invite folks that maybe live out of town and all over the place that would normally not come to church. And then I also want you to know uh, there's no more important time ever than, to, than now to be in a small group. 
And so if you go to our website, you can find out information on how you can connect in a small group. We can't gather together physically, but we get together virtually. Our small group did it last week. We had about 17 people got together and Zoom meeting and maybe there's gonna be a challenge about who has the best Zoom background. I don't know, you can go check your group out. And if you're not in a group, get in a group. We've got people that would love to have you. Our student ministries meeting, if you've got kids in that sixth to 12th grade age range, they're gonna be meeting tonight. Pastor Danny's gonna have a message for them, eight o'clock tonight. And so go to our website, all that information's there. There's more information there about lots of things that are happening. We're still doing our food drive. We wanna reach people in our community. This is a unique opportunity for us as a church, not to be on the defensive, but to be on the offensive. God didn't give us a spirit of timidity. He gives us a, a spirit of power and strength. And so we're gonna go and we're gonna continue to try and make disciples, connect people to Jesus for life change. And so I hope that you'll do the same. Would you join me in reading our benediction as we conclude today's service? It's from Philippians chapter four. Philippians chapter four, verses six and seven. Will you read this out loud with me in your living room? Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thank you for joining us today.